This morning we have a guest preacher with us, Cam Hill. He is the director of the Lead Collective, and he's one of the pastors at One Community Church, and he will be sharing with us this morning from 1 John chapter 3. So I'm going to read the scripture this morning. See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Caleb. Good morning. Hey, it's good to be with y'all. I have been wanting to worship with you all for longer than you know. Will and I have been close pals for a long time now, and I have been praying for this church. Um, Will and I get together probably monthly for lunch, um, coffee, hang out, pray together, encourage each other. And I have been pastoring um, at Summit Church historically, and because of that, I don't get too many Sundays off, and so I don't have the opportunity to visit other churches that um, I feel like my heart is connected to in many ways, and so it is really, really good to be with you all on a Sunday morning worshiping with you, and it's a privilege to open up the Word with you. Um, as uh, Caleb just read from 1 John chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. To open us off, I want to read a, uh, a quote from one of my favorite hip-hop songs. These are lyrics from that song. It's by an artist named Propaganda. He says, but my mouth has yet to catch up with what my heart knows, and my heart is still light years behind my library. It's scary. Any of y'all heard those lyrics before? You can raise your hand. Any Propaganda listeners out there? My man. All right. I want you to meditate on those words for a moment with, you, uh, with me. My mouth has yet to catch up with what my heart knows, and my heart is still light years behind my library. It's scary. It, you can have a wealth of information, right? You can have a huge library, but if your heart hasn't caught up to what you know, that doesn't really matter, does it? It's one thing to know something. It's one thing to know the truth, even. It's an entirely different thing to live the truth. That's what matters. If you don't live the truth, it doesn't actually matter that you know the truth. The truth was meant to sink into your heart, and it was meant to make its way out into your life. Otherwise, what does it matter what you know? I, this, this shows up in our lives in a variety of different ways. For me, it's primarily around food. I love food. Like, love, love food. I oftentimes say that I live meal to meal, and I was in Nashville recently and ate more fried chicken and french fries than any human being should eat in a reasonable amount of time. I ate so much of it, and I'm, I was with, it was a guy's trip, and so it was me and a, uh, a couple close friends, and we're driving back to Greenville, and on our way back, I was like, guys, I think I need to drink nothing but green smoothies for like a week and a half to make up for all of the fried chicken that we just had. And then sure enough, two days later, me and our staff team at Lead Collective are eating Rocky's hot chicken. Have y'all had Rocky's? 
Rocky's Hot Chicken on Lawrence Road, thank me later. Or don't, I'll apologize to you because it's addicting. So I'm eating that two days later and I'm like, here I am back eating fried chicken, this thing that I love that I said that I probably needed to take a break from and drink just green smoothies. And I haven't had a green smoothie since. Um, it's one thing to know that, right? I don't think I'm the only one who struggles with that. I know something. I know about nutrition. I know what's good for me. I know what's true in that area. And yet I find myself wanting to live according to something else that's maybe not good for me, that's maybe not true. And it shows up in our lives in a variety of ways. That could be food. It could be exercise. It could be sleep habits. It could be a vice. Right? It could be like, hey, listen, this, this drug or this substance that once um, enslaved me, I know the truth about that thing, and yet I find myself going back to it. It could be dependency upon alcohol. It could be porn. It could be your spending habits, your shopping habits, and this materialism that you know runs counter to who God created you to be, and yet you find it so hard to live according to the truth. I know I'm not alone in that. And one of the reasons I know that I'm not alone in that is this is not a new issue, right? Paul in Romans chapter 7 talks about this, and there's debate, and I'm not going to get into all the debate here, there's debate as to whether or not Paul's talking about this pre-conversion experience, life before Jesus, or if he's talking about the wrestle with the flesh after Jesus. Either way, it doesn't really matter. He's talking about striving. And I think all of us have experienced that striving. And here's the language that he used. He says, I don't do the good that I want. But the evil that I don't want is what I keep on doing. And then he goes on a few verses later and he says, I find it to be a law. Like that experience is so consistent in his life. He says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. Y'all ever experience that? Why is it? Yeah. We, we have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking uh, to devour us. He wants to steal, kill, destroy. What's his weapon of choice? Lying. When he lies, he speaks his native language. We do have a real enemy. And he wants to devour us. He wants to destroy us. And can I say that we live in a world that puts a whole lot more weight on what you know than on what you love, especially after the Enlightenment. Like, after the Enlightenment, we have thought, hey, listen, as long as we have more information, everything's going to be okay. It's all about what you know. And as James K. A. Smith has said, he's a philosopher and a theologian, and he says, we are not first and foremost thinking things we're lovers. We are created in the image of God, and God is love. We are lovers. You and I were created to love. We have wants, we have desires, and we are led by those things. And so we wonder, why is it that I don't do the thing that I know to be true? Well, I think sometimes it's because we don't love what is true, and we're led by what we love. You will never live the truth if you don't love the truth. You might live according to the truth for a little while, 
but eventually you're going to get derailed and you're going to spiral back to the old habits and the old patterns and the things that you've always done. The only sustainable way to live according to the truth is when your heart is gripped by the truth. The problem is my heart is still light years behind my library and it's scary. The good news is I think John has a word for us to help our hearts catch up. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it was read, but I'm going to read it again because that's my habit. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. This is the ESV. Sorry I brought this Bible up here instead of one of the CSBs. Yours, I think, says um, what great love God has for us or the Father has for us. See what kind of love the, uh, the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are, like right now. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him, beloved or dear friends. We are God's kids now. And what we will be, it hasn't yet appeared or it hasn't been revealed, but we know that when He appears, we're going to be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Can we pray real quick and then we'll dive into it? God, we've gathered here because we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. And if I'm honest, man, I'm prone to wander. My heart drifts. I am oftentimes pulled back and forth by desires of the flesh or desires in this world. And sometimes I don't need a new, profound thing. I just need to remember. I need to remember who you are. I need to remember what you've done. And I need to experience your love in a fresh way. So God, would you show up this morning and do that for us? And I ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. First verse here, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now the reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Now there is so much that we could dive in here. He makes so many profound statements, like the first of which being, you're children of God. That's who you are, like right now. That is a profound announcement of good news. That is an identity that will change your life if you let that sink in to your heart. That is absolutely profound. Look at the love that the Father has for us that we should be called children. Look at the love that the Father has for us that we are not just slaves. Look at the love that the Father has for us, that we are not just distant creatures. Look at the love that the Father has for us, that we should be called His children. And that's who you are, even now, even when that's hard to understand. But then John says something that I think is even more profound, and it's so profound, not because it's a mic drop statement, it's profound because it's so basic. He says, the reason the world doesn't know you or doesn't recognize you is because it doesn't know your father. And in saying that, he assumes something. He assumes that our identity on the inside is meant to work its way out into our lives, right? Right? 
The love that God has for you has shaped your identity. You're his children. And what does that do? It makes you unrecognizable to a world that doesn't know your dad. How, it's, like, it's so basic that he just assumes it. But how profound is that? I love to rock climb, and there's a rock climbing gym that I go to, and there was a, a climber that I met there, and um, there was something about this person that just reeked of Jesus in the best way. And I remember talking with someone, like I had, had multiple interactions with this person, and we had climbed together at length, but uh, never wore any church shirts or anything like that, didn't talk about church, but I walked away out of the gym one day and I said, there is no way he's not a Christian. Like if I were a betting man, I'd bet it all. I'm all in, that dude's a Christian. And I, I couldn't put my finger on it. There are tons of nice people in the world who aren't, aren't Christians, really pleasant people in the world who aren't Christians. It wasn't that he was nice. It wasn't that he was pleasant. I could not put my finger on it, but I said, there's no way he's not a Christian. And then just this past weekend, I was climbing outside, and I bumped into him out, out in North Carolina, and he was wearing this, like, missions shirt. And I asked him about it and asked him about church. I said, hey, do you worship anywhere? And he talked to me about where he worshiped and his experience in the church. And I walked away, and I turned to my buddy, and I was, like, not surprised. I knew it. I knew it. And I, I don't even know how I knew it. It was the fruit of the Spirit that had made its way out into his life, not in just one way. It wasn't in like this one profound thing that he said. It was just in a bunch of little ways. It was like, ah, that, that person reminds me of Jesus. Now, the thing about that is that I was so encouraged by it, but I think I was so encouraged by it because that's so rare. Like, how often do you meet people and you're like, definitely a Christian? Sometimes, right? That happens, and we should be encouraged by that. But I don't think the greatest uh, problem that the church is facing is that too many of us resemble Jesus to a watching world. I don't think the biggest issue we're facing is that people look at us, interact with us, and go, who are they? I don't know who their dad is. I think... One of our biggest problems is that it's hard to distinguish the life of a Western American Christian from the life of a Western American person. So often, if you were to ask us, hey, you talk to a Christian about their career aspirations, and you would find it hard to distinguish from someone who doesn't know Jesus— like, vocational work should be a huge part of what we do as Christians. We were created by God to work for a reason. We are building for the kingdom of God. We have a different mission that should affect everything that we do, including the things that we put our hands to. And yet so often, when I talk to Christians about their jobs, it's about how much money they make and when they can retire. It has nothing to do with the mission of God. How we spend our money how we steward everything that we have. If someone were to look at us or, or, or look at our receipts or our bank statement, they would go, it looks like you spend your money the same way the world spends their money, and yet we have a theology of stewardship that says everything we have belongs to God and we manage it for his purposes in the world. And if that were true, I would think the way that we spend everything would look radically different than the ways the world spends what they have because we view it totally differently. 
But that's not our problem, right? So often our problem is that when people look at us, everything just kind of looks the same. Maybe we've got a sticker on our car. Maybe we wear the t-shirt. We feel like we've got to wear it on our sleeve. But does it come out into our lives? Here's the deal. I don't think John slings a bunch of shame at us. John does assume that this should come out in our lives, but he acknowledges the tension. The tension that every one of us experiences because I experience that. So often, my life, the patterns and habits of my life, the rituals of my life resemble the world's. John gets that. He goes on in verse 2. He says, Beloved, dear friends, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. It hasn't yet been revealed. Do you know what he's saying? You're God's kids right now. It's who you are. But what that looks like or what that should look like, you ain't arrived yet. I haven't arrived yet. My life does not perfectly resemble the life that I was meant to live. I am not fully revealing who I am in Christ Jesus to a watching world. That has not yet been revealed. It has not yet appeared. He acknowledges the tension, what we will be. He's not saying that someday you're going to be children of God because that's who we are right now. That is our identity. That's who we are, period. It's not like we become more of God's children. It's not like we get more of God's love. It's just somehow that is revealed in our lives someday. That hasn't appeared yet. It's not perfectly visible. Well, why? Well, he goes on in the second part of verse 2, and he says, But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we're going to see him as he is. But we know. Listen, who we're going to be hasn't yet appeared. But here's what I know. That when he appears, we're going to be like him. Why? Because we're going to see him as he is. What makes you like Jesus? It's not gritting your teeth and trying hard to be like Jesus. Even though sometimes we think that. What makes you like Jesus? It's actually not just studying more about Jesus. Although sometimes we think that. What makes us like Jesus is finally seeing the face of the God who loves us. And all of a sudden, it takes all of those rumors, all of those things that we've read about, all of those things that we've heard about, all of those things we've tried to imagine, and it makes it real. And you see the love that your Father has for you, and you see it in His eyes, in the way that He looks at you, and it changes you. It takes all of the knowledge that you had up here, and it drives it into your heart. It connects the dots. It removes this dichotomy between what you love and what you know. Being with God, 
seeing him face to face in this mystery that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says someday we're going to see God and we're going to fully know him even as we have been fully known by him. There is this experience that we have of being with God that revolutionizes our lives because we see him as he is. And all of a sudden, everything that we knew that hadn't quite made its way into our heart, maybe it's things that we hadn't experienced, all of those things get driven together and we are made like him. So let's reverse the question. Why do we so often not look like Jesus? I would say it's because we don't see him. Or maybe I could say it this way, we often forget what we have been given in the love of God. We forget. We may intellectually uh, know, but our hearts are often consumed by other things, and so the result is that we know about the love of God, but we don't live in the love of God. Like, we know about the love of a heavenly Father, but we live with a mindset of scarcity where we have to look out for numero uno because in our hearts we believe no one else is looking out for us and so I've got to fight for everything that I have because if I don't, there's not enough. And it's like we forgot that the God, the Father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills knows what we need before we even ask him and he loves us and he calls us his children. So I know about the love of the Father, but I live with a scarcity mindset. Or I know about the love of a heavenly Father who has said, Oh, abide in me, obey my commands so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete, full to the brim. But I forget that. I know about it, but I live according to a hedonistic lifestyle that says, I'm going to spend my time, my money, my body on things that make me feel good things that bring me happiness or pleasure. I know about that, but I'm not living in that. Or I know that my heavenly Father has accepted me on the basis of Jesus Christ alone, and yet I have to live for the acceptance and approval of everybody around me, so much so that I put on masks for fear that you might know who I actually am and I boast, and I'm arrogant about my accomplishments, and I hide my failures. And and the sad reality of that is that I'm never ultimately accepted, because the only version of me that's been accepted is a version I've given to you to accept, uh, but it's not the real me, because I hide the real me. I know about the acceptance of the Father, but I don't live in the acceptance of the Father. Might I suggest that one of the reasons we don't live in the love of God is that we, we so easily forget what we have been given in God. We forget who he is. We forget what he's done. We forget what he has given to us in his son. But if we believed in the love of God from our head all the way down to our toes, it would transform the way we live our lives. I oftentimes say, if you can get the love of God in your bones, it will change the way you walk. It has to. It has to. 
In the language of John, if we believed what we knew, we would live lives that are holy. And when I mean holy, when I say holy, I don't mean that you are going to be perfect, that you're never going to mess up. The word holy means to be set apart. God is holy perfectly, perfectly set apart. There is no one like our God. But that begins to make its way out into our lives, and we are human, broken people, and yet we still live into the holiness of our Heavenly Father, and our lives begin to look set apart. They, they begin to look different. People begin to look at us and go, I don't recognize you because I don't know your dad. When the love of God gets into our heart, we begin to live lives that are set apart. The world looks at us and says, you are at peace in a world full of anxiety. How is that? You're so gentle in a world that's so harsh and cruel. You're so generous in a world full of scarcity. You're so forgiving in a world of bitterness and resentment. Who are you? How is that happening? How are you living your life in that way? It's the love of God making its way out into our lives and the ordinary stuff of life. When the love of God gets into your bones, it changes the way you walk. So the question is, and this is what I want to spend the remainder of our time asking and hopefully answering is how do we get the love of God into our bones, into our heart? How do we live in the love of God? And I think John answers that in this last verse. He says, everyone who thus hopes in him, or I believe your translations say, who has this hope in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Now, um, that language of hope having a hope in him, that is not hope in you. That is not like a commodity or a resource that you get and that you hang on to. That is hope in Christ. That is an action. It is, it is an activity. Thus, uh, those who hope in Christ. This is something that we are called to do. In fact, in the original language, the root word is to expect or to welcome what is certain. It, it conjures up images of hospitality, right? Like to invite or to welcome what is certain into our circumstances. It's a, a phrase that reminds me so much of hospitality. A biblical hope, it's not wishful thinking. It's inviting the reality of what God has done into our lives. Because we have to do that. We have to invite the reality of what God has done into the everydayness of our lives. And so we open the door to the mess and the chaos that is our lives, if we're honest, and we welcome Christ into that place that he might revolutionize it. And I want to offer just five practical ways that you and I can welcome or that we can hope in Christ. Five ways that we can welcome the promises of God uh, that are given to us in Christ Jesus into our lives. These are promises that are realer than real. These are true even when they don't feel like they're true. And these are things that we have to constantly welcome into our lives so that they would revolutionize the way that we think and the way that we love and the way that we live. And the first is this. We've got to open the door. We have to open the door. And by that I mean we have to create the space for this. 
Y'all, we live in a hurried, busy world where I'm telling y'all, like you can come up with different productive ways of accomplishing things and that will only lead you to, to think, oh, I guess I can fit more into my schedule. I can put more onto my calendar. I can add more things to my to-do list. And rather than us creating, um, using these pr- productivity tools to create more margin and space for Christ and the people that we love, we're like, nah, this means I get to get more done. And part of that's because we root our value in the things that we accomplish, some of us, not all of us, but some of us, guilty. We've got to create space. Do we open the door? And can I tell you all, this door that we have to open is like the storm door that's got the thing on it that constantly shuts. It always shuts. You have to reopen it. That door is not staying open. Your door stayed open this morning. That was great. The door to our lives, it constantly shuts. We are constantly filling it up are constantly um, filling our, our plates up and our time up. So we've got to reopen that door and create that space. The second thing is this. We have to invite Jesus into our home. When you open that door and when you create that space, my next question is, who are you inviting into that space? What are you inviting into that space? You can create margin, but are you looking at, like, the news on Twitter? Are you, like, what is, you know, what are you allowing to occupy that space? Is it just books about Jesus, or is it his word to us? The only thing that allows you and I to hope in the love of the Father is the word of Jesus Christ. If we detach our hope from biblical truth, we, we lose the direction of our hope. And there is a world of full of information and misinformation. And it's really easy to invite a stranger into your home who is not Jesus, who is not giving you truth. And you might find that you're creating space and you're leaving more anxious, more worried, more afraid than you were before you opened the door. So when you open that door, my question is, who are you inviting in? And my encouragement is, welcome Jesus in through his word. Create space. Spend time with Christ in his word. And my my third encouragement is, don't do all the talking. Let Jesus talk. Let Jesus speak. Spend time in silence and solitude. Get alone. Get away from distractions. Spend time reading the Word of God and then meditate on the Word of God and allow Jesus to speak to you in the silence. Silence is so uncomfortable, but I promise it's good for you. And it's good for me because our souls were meant to be with Jesus. Like We were meant to spend time with Him and we weren't meant to, to fill up that space with our own words. Sometimes we need to cry out to Jesus and we need to plead with Jesus. We need to wrestle with God and that is so good. But sometimes we just need to zip it and listen. So let Jesus talk. Then I've got one. Let Jesus cook the meal. Don't, you don't got to do all the cooking. Sometimes you need to rely on his bread and remember that man doesn't live on bread alone. Fast and pray. That this is a, a spiritual practice that God has given us that we have so often forgotten. But this is such a, it's a visceral experience that you and I have to remember our dependence on Jesus. When you let Jesus cook for you, when you fast, you are reminding yourself that you need him. 
And so in those times of life when you're anxious and you're worried and you feel like you are inadequate, fasting reminds you that you are inadequate. And that's all right. Fasting is a visceral, tangible reminder when you're hungry that you need Jesus. And that feeling of I'm not enough is a normal feeling because you're not enough, but Jesus is. And then this last point, and by the way, y'all have the coolest field guides for daily prayer. If you don't have one of these, I want to encourage you to grab one because everything that I'm talking about can be worked through with this field guide, and it fits in your pocket, and I'm taking this home with me. Thanks, Will. It's great. Spend, like to be able to spend time with God in his word, in silence, like that'll walk you through it. Pick one of those up on your way out the door if you don't have one already. They're at the welcome table. Uh, you, you probably passed them on your way in. And the last is this. And I want to invite Demond up uh, to lead us as well. But the last is go to, go to God's house. You've, you've welcomed him into your space, right? You've opened the door. You've created space. You've invited Christ to occupy the space. You, you've allowed him to speak to you through silence and solitude. You allowed him to cook uh, for you through fasting and prayer. These are things that you can do on your own throughout the week, but go to his house as well. Come in and worship and remember. This is a gift Communion is a gift that God has given us. We don't participate in communion so that God will like us more or love us more. We remember what God has done for us so that we can set our hearts on the love of God and experience his love in a fresh way together. So when, as you take this communion, remember all of the sacrifices that Christ has made to create provision so that he could create a space for you in his home. You have welcomed him into your home, but as uh, Jesus says to the disciples in John 14, he's going away to create a place for you. He has made space for you in his home. Come to his house and remember that. And so demand is going to lead us in communion together as we practice this spiritual discipline, which takes the truth of God's love and it drives it into our hearts.